Hello, welcome back to the Womance Public Access Jane Eyre read-along. I am your odd chapter reader, Morgan. And I am your even chapter reader, Isabeau. Uh, and we are sprinting towards that finish line. We are quickly approaching the exciting conclusion of Jane Eyre. But uh, this week is actually chapter 35, which I think we have just two more chapters left after this. So before we embark on chapter five, oddly numbered, so oddly numbered red, uh, would you, Isabeau, give us a recap of chapter 34? Chapter 34 was Through a Mirror Darkly, where another very strong-willed band told Jane what she thought, felt, and should do with her life. Uh, but rather than being tempted and swayed, she was not. Uh, Sinjin's project was to take Jane to India as his wife to be his fellow missionary in his genocidal colonial project. And Jane says, you know what? I don't oppose your project, but I won't marry you. And then they have this weird fight in the moor, and he's like, you gots to marry me. And she's like, I won't, you'll kill me. And then he gives her the silent treatment for a week because Sinjin thinks that that will definitely break her resolve and she will assent to marry him and go to India. You know, I think it's interesting that you bring up Sinjin's genocidal project and like threw a mirror darkly because... Right, this is the second time Jane has had a confrontation with a man where he's like, marry me or else. And um, even though Rochester's plea was more of like a, a, a spiritual marriage rather than a literal marriage, and Sinjin's is the opposite, I do think that like Sinjin's project and Rochester's projects are likewise colonialist genocide. Like, Rochester is going to the West Indies. He's marrying um, this woman who is very racialized, this character of Bertha Mason. And while I think Rochester's genocidal project is kind of a narrow aperture on one person, um, Bertha, Sinjin's is a lot broader. And I guess I wonder, do you feel, not to go back to our conversation last week, but this just shook something loose for me. Do you feel like the the text is problematizing Sinjin's project? Like, I do think it problematizes Rochester's project of keeping his wife in an attic. Sure, to an extent. To an extent. And also, like, his general, like, roustabouting in the West Indies. But. It's true. Do you think the book is likewise problematizing Sinjin's project? The thing of, or just Sinjin. Yeah, I think this book is problematizing Sinjin. It's very clear that this book does not like Sinjin's actions or the way that he is like talking to Jane. But this book doesn't seem to me to be against England's expansionist colonial policies per se. Um, it is. It doesn't like Sinjin's project in India, not just because Sinjin sucks, but also because he has the wrong kind of Christianity. Like, his is the Christianity of, like, worms in the hand of an angry god. And I do believe that Charlotte Bronte's is much more like, God is forgiving in nature, primrose path. Like, it's a... It's a it's a softer god that's no less terrifying, but is much less interested in this idea of, like your soul is damned to hell. It's like, it's not that kind of project. I think also her God, and like this might be something that aligns her more with Rochester. It's like, she has a very individualistic relationship with her religion and her spirituality. Whereas like Sinjin's is extremely institutionalized. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Sinjin kind of has that like, yes, not unlike another earlier villain uh in the form of the guy who ran the orphanage mr brocklehurst exactly that that is a really good connection we got a brocklehurst 2.0 situation but like more explicitly horny which is remarkable because brocklehurst was so horny yeah cut those girls hair um, so whenever we say worms in a hand of an angry god, I don't know if like European school children read the Puritan 
sermon known as so for all of our international listeners um there is a famous sermon called sinners in the hands of an angry god that was like an early american colonialist puritan sermon that we all read when we're in like the sixth grade it's true to teach us i don't know about the puritans the other day i was reflecting on this and i was like i still don't understand predestination (laughs) Same as And I think you're right. Like, our international audience, I'm so glad that you brought this up because, like, literally the Puritans were thrown out of England. Like, the Sinjins of England were sent to the New World because they were too crazy for England. Yeah. And so, like, the fact that Sinjin can't find a home in his little curate in his, like, little town of S. Beep. Yeah. Also makes total sense to me. And they're like, we love your passion. We love your oratory. We love your like weirdo fucked up courage. <laughs> we'll just send you, we'll just send you to the the far reaches of the empire where you can do more damage, right? Like we don't want that here, right? We just want like our tea and crumpets and like we'll think about God on Sundays. But this whole thing you got going, that doesn't work for us. The settlers were a heady mix of tax criminals (laughs) and Puritans. How we've managed to come up to 2022 before our empire crumbled is kind of beyond me when I think about Uh, that stuff. But anyways, if you if you liked The Witch, uh, directed by Eggers, then you will love Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <laughs> it's true. If you if you like that kind of fear, might I recommend it? I remember having like you probably had the same experience, and every English teacher, middle school English teacher in the United States, has probably had this experience where you're like trying to learn about predestination because it's like super important that like the Puritans believed God had like predestined certain people for heaven and certain people for hell um, and that there's like no way out of it, but you should still be a good person to try and get into heaven, which it seems like they like irrationally rationalize their way into like some kind of atheism <laughs> where it's like just be a good person because it's good to be a good person. Also, interestingly, they thought that um, if uh, two people were having, if a man and a woman were having sex uh, and the woman did not come, she did not have an orgasm, then that was the same as the man masturbating and therefore was a sin. So they were had uh, like pretty specific instructions on clitoral stimulation in their marriage handbooks. Right. Isn't that wild? Because if a woman didn't orgasm when she was having sex, she couldn't get pregnant. Yeah, they thought that she had to is, release a seed as well. Right. And so, like, if she wasn't getting off. But that was also, like, part of, like, the awful way that they, like, described rape laws in the early uh, Americas. Yeah. So it's, like, if you didn't come, then, like, or if you did, or if you enjoyed any pleasure at all. Yeah. Early Americas. I'm pretty sure that was up until, like, 1998. But... <laughs> Yeah. I like Jesus Christ. <laughs> Maybe we are still in the early Americas. Maybe <laughs> it doesn't feel like we're not. <laughs> it doesn't feel like we're not. Like tax criminals and crazy religious fanatics. <laughs> 2022. Uh all right. So Jane has rejected another marriage proposal and Sinjin is butthurt and ruining their friendship over it. Chapter 35 He did not leave for Cambridge the next day, as he had said he would. He deferred his departure a whole week, and during that time he made me feel what severe punishment, a good yet stern, a conscientious yet implacable man can inflict on one who has offended him. Without one overt act of hostility, one upbraiding word, he contrived to impress me momently with the conviction that I was put beyond the pale of his favor. Not that Sinjin harbored a spirit of unchristian vindictiveness, not that he would have injured a hair of my head, if it had been fully in his power to do so. Both by nature and principle, he was superior to the mean gratification of vengeance. 
He had forgiven me for saying I had scorned him in his love, but he had not forgotten the words, and as long as he and I lived, he never would forget them. I saw by his look, when he turned to me, that they were always written on the air between me and him. Whenever I spoke, they sounded in my voice to his ear, and their echo toned every answer he gave me. Just beautiful piece of writing there. He did not abstain from conversing with me. He even called me as usual each morning to join him at his desk. And I fear the corrupt man within him had a pleasure in unimparted to, and unshared by, the pure Christian, in evincing with what skill he could, while acting and speaking apparently just as usual, extract from every deed and every phrase the spirit of interest and approval, which had formerly communicated a certain austere charm to his language and manner. To me, he was, in reality, become no longer flesh, but marble. His eye was a cold, bright blue gem, his tongue a speaking instrument, nothing more. All this was torture to me, refined, lingering torture. It kept up a slow fire of indignation and a trembling trouble of grief, which harassed and crushed me altogether. I felt how, if I were his wife, this good man, pure as the deep sunless source, could soon kill me without drawing from my veins a single drop of blood or receiving on his own crystal conscience the faintest stain of crime. Especially I felt this when I made any attempt to propitiate him. No Ruth met my Ruth. He experienced no suffering from estrangement, no yearning after reconciliation, and though, more than once, my fast-falling tears blistered the page over which we both bent, they produced no more effect on him than if his heart had really been a matter of stone or metal. To his sisters, meantime, he was somewhat kinder than usual, as if afraid that mere coldness would not sufficiently convince me how completely I was banished and banned. He added the force of contrast, and this I am sure he did not by malice, but on principle. The night before he left home, happening to see him walking in the garden after sunset, and remembering as I looked at him that this man, alienated as he now was, had once saved my life, and that we were near relations. I was moved to make a last attempt to regain his friendship. I went out and approached him as he stood leaning over the little gate. I spoke to the point at once. Sinjin, I am unhappy because you are still angry with me. Let us be friends. I hope we are friends, was the unmoved reply while he still watched the rising of the moon, which he had been contemplating as I approached. No, Sinjin, we are not friends as we were. You know that. Are we not? That is wrong. For my part, I wish you no ill and all good. Gaslighting. Yeah, like fucking 101. I believe you, Sinjin, for I am sure you are incapable of wishing anyone ill. But as I am your kinswoman, I should desire somewhat more of affection than that sort of general philanthropy you extend to mere strangers. Of course, he said, your wish is reasonable, and I am far from regarding you as a stranger. This, spoken in a cool, tranquil tone, was mortifying and baffling enough. Had I attended to the suggestions of pride and ire, I should immediately have left him. But something worked within me more strongly than those feelings could. I deeply venerated my cousin's talent and principle. His friendship was of value to me. To lose it tried me severely. I would not so soon relinquish the attempt to reconquer it. Must we part this way, Sinjin? And when you go to India, will you leave me so, without a kinder word than you have yet spoken? He now turned quite from the moon and faced me. When I go to India, Jane, will I leave you? What? Do you not go to India? You said I could not unless I married you. And you will not marry me. You adhere to that resolution. <laughs> Yeah, dude, you've ignored me for a whole yeah. fucking week. Why would I marry you? He is delusional. Yeah. Reader, 
Yes, Jane. Do you know, <laughs> as I do, what terror those cold people can put into the ice of their questions? How much of the fall of the av avalanche is in their anger? Of the breaking up of the frozen sea in their displeasure? Whew, I do, Jane, I do. No, Sinjin, I will not marry you. I adhere to my resolution. The avalanche had shaken and slid a little forward, but it did not yet crash down. Once more, why this refusal? he asked. Formerly, I answered, because you did not love me now. I reply because you almost hate me. If I were to marry you, you would kill me. You are killing me now. His lips and cheeks turned white. Quite white. I should kill. I am killing you. Your words are such as ought not to be used. Violent, unfeminine, and untrue. So good. They betray an unfortunate state of mind. They merit severe reproof. They would seem inexcusable but that it is the duty of man to forgive his fellow even until 70 and seven times. I like that there's a specific number speaking to his institutionalized religion. That's St. Paul for you. I had finished the business now. While earnestly wishing to erase from his mind the trace of my former offense, I had stamped on that tenacious surface another and far deeper impression I had burned it in. Now you will indeed hate me, I said. It is useless to attempt to conciliate you. I see I have made an eternal enemy of you. A fresh wrong did these words inflict, the worse because they touched it on the truth. The bloodless lip quivered to a temporary spasm. I knew the steely ire I had wetted. I was heart wrung. You utterly misinterpret my words, I said, at once seizing his hand. I have no intention to grieve or pain you. Indeed, I have not. Most bitterly, he smiled. Most decidedly, he withdrew his hand from mine. And now you recall your promise, and will not go to India at all, I presume, said he after a considerable pause. Yes, I will, as your assistant, I answered. A very long silence succeeded. What struggle there was in him between nature and grace in this interval, I cannot tell. Only singular gleams scintillated in his eyes, and strange shadows passed over his face. He spoke at last. I before proved to you the absurdity of a single woman of your age proposing to accompany abroad a single man of mine. I proved it to you in such terms as I should have thought would have prevented you ever again alluding to the plan. That you have done so, I regret. For your sake. Because it means you're dumb, Jane. So mean. I interrupted him. Anything like a tangible reproach gave me courage at once. Keep to common sense, Sinjin. You are verging on nonsense. Man, I wish I could say that to a man. Oh, please. I will yes. the next time. It comes up the minute the opportunity presents itself. Keep to common sense. You are verging on nonsense. You pretend to be shocked by what I have said. You are not really shocked, for with your superior mind, you cannot be either so dull or so conceited as to misunderstand my meaning. I say again, I will be your curate if you like, but never your wife. Again, he turned lividly pale, but, as before, controlled his passion perfectly. He answered emphatically but calmly, A female curate who is not my wife would never suit me. With me, then, it seems you cannot go, but if you are sincere in your offer, I will, while in town, speak to a married missionary whose wife needs a coadjutor. Coadjutor. Your own fortune will make you independent of the society's aid, and thus you may still be spared the dishonor of breaking your promise and deserting the band you engaged to join. Now, I never had, as the reader knows. 
either given any formal promise or entered into any engagement, and this language was all much too hard and much too despotic for the occasion. I replied, There is no dishonor, no breach of promise, no desertion in the case I am not under the slightest obligation to go to India, especially with strangers. With you, I would have ventured much because I admire, confide in, and as a sister, I love you. But I am convinced that, go when and with whom I would, I should not live long in that climate. Ah, you are afraid of yourself, he said, curling his lip. Weakness! I, I am! God did not give me my life to throw away, and to do as you wish me would, I begin to think, be almost equivalent to committing suicide. Moreover, before I definitely resolve on quitting England, I will know for certain whether I cannot be of greater use by remaining in it than by leaving it. What do you mean? It would be fruitless to attempt to explain, but there is a point on which I have long endured painful doubt, and I can go nowhere till by some means that doubt is removed. I know where your heart turns, and to what it clings. The interest you cherish is lawless and unconsecrated. Long since you ought to have crushed it, now you should blush to allude to it. You think of Mr. Rochester? It was true. I confessed it by silence. Are you going to seek Mr. Rochester? I must find out what has become of him. It remains for me then, he said, to remember you in my prayers and to entreat God for you in all earnestness that you may not indeed become a castaway. I had thought I recognized in you one of the chosen, but God sees not as man sees, his will be done. That's right. Not your will, Sinjin. I think he's confusing the two wills uh, and conflating them. Yeah, and using it, but then immediately extracting them as a scapegoat to his conversation to belittle someone. Yeah. He opened the gate, passed through it, and strayed away down the glen. He was soon out of sight. On re-entering the parlor, I found Diana standing at the window looking very thoughtful. Diana was a great deal taller than I. Of course she is. Oh, she's tall. <laughs> it means she's hot. Kiss, 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 kiss. She put her hand on my shoulder and stooping examined my face. I forgot their cousins. Jane, she said, you are always agitated and pale now. I am sure there is something the matter. Tell me what business Sinjin and you have on hand. I have watched you this half hour from the windows. You must forgive my being such a spy, but for a long time I fancied I hardly know what. Sunjin is a strange being. She paused. I did not speak. Soon she resumed. That brother of mine cherishes peculiar views of some sort respecting you, I am sure. He has long distinguished you by a notice and interest he never showed anyone else. To what end? I wish he loved you. Does he, Jane? I put her cool hand to my hot forehead. No, Di, not one whit. Then why does he follow you so with his eyes and get you so frequently alone with him and keep you so continually at his side? Mary and I had both concluded he wished you to marry him. He does. He has asked me to be his wife. Diana clapped her hands. That is just what we hoped and thought. And you will marry him, Jane, won't you? And then he will stay in England. Far from that, Diana, his sole idea in proposing to me is to procure a fitting fellow laborer in his Indian toils. What? He wishes you to go to India? Yes. Madness! she exclaimed. You could not live three months there, I am certain. You never shall go. You have not consented. Have you, Jane? I have refused to marry him. And have consequently displeased him, she suggested. Deeply. He will never forgive me, I fear. Yet I offered to accompany him as his sister. It was frantic folly to do so, Jane. Think of the task you undertook. One of the one of incessant fatigue, where fatigue kills even the strong. And you are weak. The fuck? You're not tall like me, Jane. <laughs> tall and good at German. She's the whole package. 
It's true. Diana really is the whole package. Sinjin, you know him, would urge you to impossibilities. With him, there would be no permission to rest during the hot hours, and unfortunately, I have noticed, whatever he exacts, you force yourself to perform. I am astonished you found courage to refuse his hand. You do not love him then, Jane. Not as a husband. Yet he is a handsome fellow. And I am so plain. You see, Di, we would never suit. Plain? You? Not at all. You are much too pretty, as well as too good, to be grilled alive in Calcutta. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Di. I, I like that Jane, for the first time, someone is telling Jane that she's pretty. Mm-hmm. Like, all we've seen up... Like, here's the... So, like, Jane is, like, famously plain, but I have to say, like... I haven't heard anyone tell her, like, you're plain. Like, I've heard Rochester describe her as, like, handsome. But, like, Jodie mm-hmm. Foster is handsome. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's just... Angelica Houston is handsome. Like, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Handsome. But this isn't the Handsome Celebrity Women podcast. Uh, <laughs> as much as we're trying to make it that. Uh... The fact is, is, like, these men become, like, obsessed with her. And I know that the book is, like, taking pains to make us think that it's her personality, but really it's, like, the vacuum of her personality that she presents. I keep saying vacuum, but, like, it's, like, she creates a projector screen by being so within herself, right, that they can, like, put their thoughts and and they constantly are, like, monologuing about who they think she is. But I don't think they would be interested in using her as a projector screen unless she was pretty. I don't know. I'm just always I'm a, I've always been like a little bit suspicious that the book actually thinks Jane isn't a cutie. The book definitely thinks that Jane is a cutie for all of the things that she says about like my cheeks are not so rosy as Diana's, but you know, they're like fine enough. And like my brow is unlined. Like she even says things about herself where it's like, we fucking know that you're pretty. Like you, thou dost protest too much. And then the other thing about this that this really brings up for me is like, I'm glad that Diana said that she's pretty because she really respects and admires Diana's both inner and outer beauty. But it seems to me that like, one of the first things you would notice about Jane is that she insists on her own plainness. And mm. if you're obsessed with her, one of the ways that you could keep her under your thumb is by never acknowledging that it insecurity and also by subtly playing into it. We see this reflected once again in She Don't Know She's Beautiful by One Direction, right? Yes. That's what makes her beautiful. Exactly. She's easily possessed. Right. And men aren't going to contradict her. Yeah, because she's easily possessed. But if she knew that she was beautiful, she would be more powerful. But this is like reframing my understanding of the makeover scene from earlier in the book when Rochester wants her to buy like velvets and silks. And she feels very like put upon and overwhelmed. I think she was overwhelmed by the money, not necessarily the beauty of the things. I think perhaps she was... This is a deeper conversation, but let's put a pin in this because okay. I want I want to talk about this more. Okay, but I'm gonna go back to reading the book. Oh, but the other thing I want to say is that, like, once again, we're seeing this like English colonial project of like you're too pretty to die in Calcutta. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like there's so many layers to Diana's singular quote here. All right, plain you not at all you are much too pretty as well as too good to be grilled alive in calcutta and again she earnestly conjured me to give up all thoughts of going out with her brother i must indeed i said for when just now i repeated the offer of serving him for a deacon he expressed himself shocked at my want of decency he seemed to think i had committed an impropriety in proposing to accompany him unmarried as if I had not from the first hoped to find in him a brother and habitually regarded him as such. What makes you say he does not love you, Jane? You should hear himself on the subject. He has again and again explained that it is not himself, but his office he wishes to mate. He has told me I am formed for labor, not for love, which is true, no doubt. But in my opinion... If I am not formed for love, it follows that I am not formed for marriage. 
Would it not be strange, Di, to be chained for life to a man who regarded one but as a useful tool? Insupportable, unnatural, out of the question. That feels radical for this time period. It is incredibly radical. Insupportable, unnatural, out of the question. And then, I continued, though I have only sisterly affection for him now, yet, if forced to be his wife, I can imagine the possibility of conceiving an inevitable, strange, torturing kind of love for him, because he is so talented, and there is often a certain heroic grandeur in his look, manner, and conversation. In that case, my lot would become unspeakably wretched. He would not want me to love him, and if I showed the feeling, he would make me sensible that it was superfluity, unrequired by him, unbecoming in me. I know he would. And yet... Sinjin is a good man, <laughs> said Diana. Is he, Di? Okay, Di. Diana loves her brother, full package. I get it. You know? Yeah. He is a good and great man, and a great man. But he forgets, pitilessly, the feelings and claims of little people in pursuing his own large views. It is better, therefore, for the insignificant to keep out of his way, lest, in his progress, he should trample them down here he comes. I believe you, Diana. <laughs> Sorry, that's not how she would have said it. And I hastened up the stairs and saw him entering the garden. That's definitely how her heart said it. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> but I was forced to meet him again at supper. Fuck. During that meal, he appeared just as composed as usual. Go figure. I had thought he would hardly speak to me, and I was certain he had given up the pursuit of matrimonial scheme. The sequel showed... I was mistaken on both points. <laughs> he addressed me precisely in his ordinary manner, or what had of late been his ordinary manner, one scrupulously polite. No doubt he had invoked the help of the Holy Spirit to subdue the anger I'd roused in him, and now believed he had forgiven me once more. I love that. Believed he had forgiven me once more. Mm-hmm. Even this book knows that he at least is not honest with himself. It's also one of those like incredible like pithy phrases that just like I read it and so many of my life experiences of looking over at someone who's pretended to for- who's convinced themselves that they've forgiven me, right? And I know otherwise, very evocative. For the evening reading before prayers, he selected the 21st chapter of Revelation. Oh shit, yeah, he's okay. reading Revelations. He is barely keeping a lid on this. <laughs> It was at all times pleasant to listen. While from his lips fell the words of the Bible, never did his fine voice sound at once so sweet and full. Never did his manner become so impressive in its noble simplicity as when he delivered the oracles of God. And tonight that voice took a more solemn tone, that manner a more thrilling meaning, as he sat in the midst of his household circle, the May moon shining in through the uncurtained window and rendering almost unnecessary the light of the candle on the table. As he sat there, bending over the great old Bible and described from its page the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, told how God would come to dwell with men, how he would wipe away all tears from their eyes and promise that there should be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, nor any more pain, because the former things were passed away. The succeeding words thrilled me strangely as he spoke them, especially as I felt by the slight indescribable alteration in sound, and in uttering them his eye had turned on me. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. But was slowly and distinctly read, the fearful, the unbelieving, etc., <laughs> shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Henceforth I knew what fate Sinjin feared for me. <laughs> is this is this a fear? Is this a fear that he has for you, Jane? Or is this like a fucking sacred wish? God, Sinjin sucks. A calm, subdued triumph, 
blent with longing earnestness, marked his enunciation of the last glorious verse of the chapter. The reader believed his name was already written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he yearned after the hour which should admit him to the city to which the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor, which has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, because the glory of God lightens it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. In the prayer following the chapter, all his energy gathered, all his stern zeal woke. He was in deep earnest, wrestling with God, and resolved on a conquest. He supplicated strength for the weak-hearted, guidance for wanderers from the fold, a return, even at the eleventh hour, for those whom the temptations of the world and the flesh were luring from the narrow path. He asked, he urged, he claimed the boon of a brand snatched from the burning. Earnestness is ever deeply solemn. First, as I listened to that prayer, I wondered at his. Then, when it continued in rows, I was touched by it, and at last awed. He felt the greatness and goodness of his purpose so sincerely. Others who heard him plead for it would not, feel, would not but feel it too. The prayer over, we took leave of him. He was to go at a very early hour in the morning. Diana and Mary, having kissed him, left the room in compliance, I think, with a whispered hint from him. I tendered my hand and wished him a pleasant journey. Thank you, Jane. As I said, I shall return from Cambridge in a fortnight. That space, then, is yet left you for reflection. If I listened to human pride, I should say no more to you of marriage with me. But I listen to my duty and keep steadily in view my first aim, to do all things to the glory of God. My master was long-suffering, so will I be. <laughs> I cannot give you up to perdition as a vessel of wrath. Repent. Resolve while there is yet time. Remember, we are bid to work while it is day. Warned that the night cometh when no man shall work. Remember the fate of Dives, who had his good things in his life. God give you strength to choose that better part, which shall not be taken from you. He laid his hand on my head, oh, as he uttered the last words. He had spoken earnestly, mildly. His look was not, indeed, that of a lover beholding his mistress, but it was that of a pastor recalling his wandering sheep, or better, of a guardian angel watching the soul for which he is responsible. All men of talent, whether they be men of feeling or not, whether they be zealots or aspirants or despots, provided only they be sincere, have their sublime moments when they subdue and rule. God, that's true. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it makes me think of cult leaders. Mm-hmm. I felt veneration for Sinjin. Veneration so strong that its impetus thrust me at once to the point I had so long shunned. Uh, quick shout out to Mary Reichman, our <laughs> illustrator, who also taught me how to pronounce the word impetus. Uh, <laughs> I was tempted to cease struggling with him, to rush down to the torrent of his will into the gulf of his existence and there lose my own. I was almost as hard beset by him now as I had been once before, in a different way, by another. I was a fool both times. To have yielded then would have been an error of principle. To have yielded now would have been an error of judgment. So I think at this hour, when I look back to the crisis through the quiet medium of time, I was unconscious of folly at the instant. I stood motionless under my hero fan's touch. My refusals were forgotten, my fears overcome, my wrestlings paralyzed. The impossible, i.e. my marriage with Sinjin, was fast becoming the possible. All was changing utterly with a sudden sweep. Religion called, angels beckoned. God commanded. Life rolled together like a scroll. Death's gates opening showed eternity beyond. It seemed that, for safety and bliss there, here might be sacrificed in a second. The dim room was full of visions. Could you decide now? asked the missionary. The inquiry was put in gentle tones. He drew me to him, gen to him as gently. Oh, that gentleness. How far more potent it is than force. 
I could resist Sinjin's wrath. I grew pliant as a reed under his kindness. Yet I knew all the time, if I yielded now, I should not the less be made to repent, some day, of my former rebellion. His nature was not changed by one hour of solemn prayer. It was only elevated. I could decide if I were but certain, I answered. Were I but convinced that it is God's will I should marry you, I could vow to marry you here and now, come afterwards what would. My prayers are heard, ejaculated Sinjin. Mm. <laughs> he pressed his hand firmer on my head, as if he claimed me. He surrounded me with his arm, almost as if he loved me. I say almost, I knew the difference, for I had felt what it was to be loved, but like him, I now put love out of the question and thought only of duty. I contended with my inward dimness of vision, before which clouds yet rolled. I sincerely, deeply, fervently longed to do what was right, and only that. Show me, show me the path I entreated of heaven. I was excited more than I had ever been, and whether what followed was the effect of excitement, the reader shall judge. All the house was still, for I believe all except Sinjin and myself were now retired to rest. One candle was dying out, the room full of moonlight. My heart beat fast and thick. I heard it throb. Suddenly, it stood still to an inexpressible feeling that thrilled it through and passed at once to my head and extremities. The feeling was not like an electric shock, but it was quite as sharp, as strange, as startling. It acted on my senses as if their utmost activity hitherto had been but torpor, from which they were now summoned and forced to wake. They rose expectant, eye and ear waited, while the flesh quivered on my bones. Did she just have an orgasm from having her head touched? Yeah. It's a religious experience, Morgan. What have you heard? What do you see? asked Sinjin. I saw nothing, but I heard a voice somewhere cry. Jane, Jane, Jane. Nothing more. Oh God, what is it? I gasped. I might have said, where is it? For it did not seem in the room, nor in the house, nor in the garden. It did not come out of the air, nor from under the earth, nor from overhead. I had heard it. Where or whence, forever impossible to know. And it was the voice of a human being, a known, loved, well-remembered voice, that of Edward Fairfax Rochester. And it spoke in pain and woe, wildly, eerily, urgently. I am coming, I cried. Wait for me. Oh, I will come. I flew to the door and looked into the passage. It was dark. I ran out into the garden. It was void. Where are you? I exclaimed. Where are you? I exclaimed. The hills beyond Marsh Glen sent the answer faintly back. Where are you? I listened. The wind sighed low in the firs. All was moorland and loneliness and midnight hush. Down superstition, I commented, as that specter rose up black by the black yew at the gate. That is not thy deception, nor thy witchcraft. It is the work of nature. She was roused and did no miracle, but her best. I broke from Sinjin, who had followed, and would have detained me. It was my turn to assume ascendancy. My powers were in play and in force. I told him to forbear question or remark. I desired him to leave me. I must and would be alone. He obeyed at once. Where there is energy to command well enough, obedience never fails. I mounted to my chamber, locked myself in, fell on my knees, and prayed in my way, a different way to Sinjin's, but effective in its own fashion. I seemed to penetrate very near a mighty spirit, and my soul rushed out in gratitude at his feet. I rose from the thanksgiving, took a resolve, and lay down, unscared, enlightened, eager but for the daylight.
So very much uh, just like tied up, put a spotlight on your point about the different forms of Christianity. <laughs> really drove that point home. She did not, the text did not want that point to be missed. Indeed not. It's not that the genocidal uh, campaign of colonialism in India is wrong so much as following a cult leader who's convinced that his will and God's are the same is not going to be good for anyone. The other thing that I was thinking about is you so beautifully read this entire chapter and like, shout out to you. So many of these paragraphs Aww. are just a single sentence and you did it marvelously. <laughs> Thank you. But as you were reading it, it felt so cinematic. And in all of the versions of Jane Eyre we've watched, this scene where he asks her to marry him and come with him to India is either entirely omitted or entirely truncated, where her urgency and her reasoning for why she won't go with him is never expressed in film. And I think that's a real tragedy, because like when yeah. she says, like, this is my power, this is my ascendancy, this is the feminist manifesto that so many historians for so long have said and based their studies on, like, this is the proto-feminine literary text. Yeah. I, I mean, Rochester is so captivating. Yes. And he takes up a larger percentage of the, well... I don't know, but he takes he feels like he takes up more space in the book. He definitely takes up more space in the cultural imagination than Sinjin. But I agree entirely. Reading this section of the book, the proto-feminist project is in the relationship with Sinjin. And I would say even more so, like the really directly relatable experience of being a woman living with a man, even in our current moment, is expressed through the relationship with Sinjin. And I would say he's like a way more like frightening force than Rochester. And I think that the book is clever in making this like small town pastor somehow a greater force of nature than Rochester. Like he's concentrated to a pinpoint, you know? Yeah. He is just fascinating. And you're right. He just doesn't. Sinjin's character is not given space in adaptations, visual adaptations of this text. It, it makes me appreciate Jamie Bell's casting and his performance more mm -hmm. revisiting this part. And I think the reason this doesn't like stick in my mind is when I read this, I was but a babe in arms. Like, I couldn't realize that this is maybe the bigger story. Yeah, because when you read it, uh, certainly when I read it the first time, like, you're just getting through all of this, like, whatever, hemming and hawing so that you can get back to Rochester. But I think what's so insidious and terrifying about Sinjin is, like, how quietly born this whole thing is it's like he does save her life he does give her a job and an occupation and purpose and like checks in on her he is her cousin but like more than that they they are very similar like he keeps his emotions really well in check she does the same but she doesn't like that he does that and she doesn't seem to like it about herself either. Mm -hmm. And then this entire discussion of how he is gaslighting her and how he is giving her the silent treatment, even like the discussion of having someone's anger be like an avalanche or like the cold breakup of a like the ice breaking on a lake and that that's more terrifying than Rochester's storm because at least the storm will pass. This chapter, I feel, is one of the more beautifully worded ones we've read in a while. Um, the language is quite moving and direct and clear. So, like, it is, I do feel like we kind of also can note, like, a progression in Charlotte Bronte's skill, right? Because mm -hmm. she's able to use these nature metaphors in a way more succinct way, but still be as affecting. I think there's something here about, like, the quiet, murderous tyranny of marriage in 1843 and to a person who you cannot even have the recourse of love and affection to, like, pull on the reins. 
And I love that it's not like the world, Jane is the only one who feels this way, and it's Jane versus the world, right? Diana serves as a fellow, like, woman, and indeed a sister of the man who is, like, interested in inflicting this institutional, you know, uh, cage on Jane, right? Saying, no, this is not possible. This is inexcusable, right? She is likewise critical of the plan. Tall, perfect Diana. Still loves her brother, but is not uh, ignorant of his faults. I've gotten so much out of this time that I never have. This time in, in Jane's life. I totally agree. I like I've never gotten this much out of her time with the with Sinjin and Mary and Diana before. I've never taken the time to meet these chapters where they were. Rather than like the the road to which is paved to Thornfield, you know. Yeah. Like, the relationship with Rochester does not leave a lot of space for personal growth. And it beyond just, like, being able to, like, rupture your life. Although Jane, I would say, exhibited capacity for that in the beginning of the book just by seeking out her position as a governess, right? And so it's not until we... Until she's totally undone, right? She's starved. She's humbled she's say, truly humbled because I think she always like Sinjin she always thought she was humble and uh, although I would say her worldview on her students maybe indicates she's not totally humbled but the rustics yeah the rustics anything else no that was perfect all right well with that I would just advise that you um, loosen your Janes but never your heirs Mwah. Mwah.